And you may be seated. And as you're seated this morning, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, uh, because I decided that we're going to continue our series in John's Gospel through Easter. There are 15 Sundays between now and then. I'm going to actually be gone next Sunday preaching at our uh, the church plant in Merrillville that I'm on the session of. So that gives us 14 Sundays between now and Easter. There's 21 chapters in John, which means we won't hit everything, but we'll definitely have a chance to hit all of the major events and sermons and descriptions that are in the gospel. Uh, For this morning, we're going to reflect on one of the more famous and, for me, encouraging stories about Jesus in John's gospel, which is where Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding. And to help us read this event deeply... It's good to know that the story of Jesus turning water into wine and the story that we'll think about in two Sundays of Jesus driving out the money changers from the temple with a whip are fairly unique in John's gospel because they are not introduced or followed by sermons or discussions or descriptions about what Jesus was doing. Which means that uh, unlike all the other miracles and events of Jesus' life, in John's gospel, they are not immediately interpreted for us. And this is important because as several commentators have noted, this most likely means that the full meaning and significance of these two stories is explained by the rest of John's gospel. Or to flip the image a little bit, these stories are meant to be glasses that help us think really well and think really deeply about all the things that Jesus is doing and saying in his ministry in the Gospel of John. And, uh, and, and in that, so in that way, then, Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding isn't like some interesting but ultimately unimportant miracle. It's actually revealing part of the core of Jesus' mission and ministry to us. And in that light, when we read our text, we're going to hear that through this miracle, Jesus revealed his glory. And that because of how Jesus revealed his glory... His disciples trusted themselves to him even more than they had before. And the fact that John described this as Jesus revealing his glory and that the disciples understood this miracle as something that proved that Jesus is more trustworthy than they had yet realized, that should cause us to ask, as we read it and think about it this morning, where do we see Jesus' glory in our lives so that we can trust him more than we did when we walked in this morning? Because I think that we look for God's glory in our lives in very big things like miracles and visions, uh, intense emotional experiences of the kind that happen on spiritual retreats or mission trips or maybe even like a really intense, emotionally intense time in prayer. But in our text this morning, the disciples see Jesus' glory at a country wedding reception and really in the back or the kind of the back room or back corner of that wedding reception. And there in relative obscurity, the disciples see Jesus do something so glorious that it moves them to give their lives to him more than they yet had. What did they see in the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine? That's our question so that we can see what they saw. And to answer that question, we're going to look at four things briefly. The first is Jesus's glory is turning forgiveness into abundant, peaceful, relational blessings. So that's kind of like eight things. I sort of snuck four points into the first point. Jesus turning forgiveness into abundant, peaceful, relational blessings. The second thing we're going to look at is Jesus restores those blessings when they run out. 
And the third is Jesus' glory comes through faith. And then the finally, the fourth is how we learn to see Jesus' glory in our everyday lives. So uh, Jesus turning, forget, turning forgiveness into abundant, peaceful, relational blessings. Jesus restoring those blessings when they run out. Jesus' glory comes through faith. And then finally, how we learn to see Jesus' glory in our everyday lives. So let's read John 2, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll start our meditation this morning. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we know uh, that uh, your word is life and light and that it is through it that we come to know you more and see you more clearly and trust you more. And Lord, we also know that unless your spirit works with your word in our lives, that it will be of no effect to us. And so we pray, Father, that you would be present now, not only as we have read your word here and as we've read it throughout the service, but Lord, as we meditate on it, Lord, take your word and write it upon our hearts uh, so that we might uh, trust you more. Father, may the words of my mouth now as your preacher and the meditation of our hearts as those called to hear and receive your word be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at is Jesus' glory is turning forgiveness into abundant, peaceful, relational blessings. And that's our first point because that's most of what the disciples actually saw in Jesus' miracle. And so here's how we can see that. So Jesus is at a wedding. What are weddings about? Well, mostly weddings are a celebration of a new relationship founded on love and respect and a hopeful future, right? Obviously. But weddings are also a celebration of new family relationships because two families are now being connected. And also they're a celebration of new friendships because two different friend circles are being connected, Now, obviously, that's a little bit of an idealized picture, but it's ideal for a reason, right? What we want from our marriages and our wedding ceremonies are new relationships and new connections of unity and love. And we know that, just like the ancient society, so in our society, because when we seat people at wedding receptions, we think about the new connections that we want to make, right? These people would be good friends. Make sure they're sitting together. Or because love is in the air, these would make a really cute couple. Make sure they're at the same table, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> Weddings are a celebration of a new relationship that are also aimed at creating even more relationships and celebrating these potential growth in relationships. And that's how God actually designed it to be. In the Bible, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, God looks at marriages, not just at weddings, but even as marriages, not only as a commitment of love and care between a husband and a wife, he also looks at it as a way to build long-term, new, powerful, and even redemptive relationships between families and friends and the communities of the people who got married. So the context of celebrating and creating new and joyful relationships actually sets the stage. And there are two more things that set the stage for seeing Jesus' glory here, and that's wine and water. So first, the wine. Uh, So I know that we live in an area where there are some Christian traditions and some brothers and sisters who are very against the consumption of alcohol in any form and in any amount. And I understand that that's because they've often felt the ravages of drunkenness and alcohol abuse in their families' lives. Now, sometimes personal experience can help us hear the Bible better, right? So when we come out of suffering or hardship or pain, we can really hear God's words of comfort and healing and restoration really very clearly. But sometimes our experiences can make it harder for us to hear God's word too. And I want to be sure that we hear what the Bible says about wine in particular because it's really very important to this text and other texts that are actually central in John's gospel, like Jesus saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. So let's start with this. The Bible condemns categorically drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin, and like all sins, it kills and destroys. But that is not all or even most of what the Bible has to say about wine at all. As a matter of fact, wine is one of the most common topics in the Bible. When Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches, that's a reference to grapevines, which were used, I probably need to say almost because there's probably an exception I'm not aware of, but I don't think so. Vine, grapevines were used almost exclusively for making wine, not for eating, but for venting. When Jesus talks about living a blessed life with him, he describes that blessed life as wine and how we need new wineskins, that is a recreated life, to enjoy those blessings without bursting. Jesus says that wine is a gift he's given to make our hearts glad in Ecclesiastes. Jesus' symbol for enjoying life with him today is bread and wine and communion. Right? And Jesus describes our future life with him in the new heavens and the new earth as one of feasting and drinking wine. Now, I'm not saying all that to convince you to drink wine, but I do say all that to get you to see what wine describes in the Bible. And if you've had really bad experiences with alcohol abuse, it, it might be hard to see that. And, and I get that, and so does Jesus. However, it's important to see, it's important that all of us see that in the Bible, wine is given by God to help us express and enjoy his blessings, the blessings of his presence, of our relationships, and of all his gifts of happiness and joy. And even of peace, actually. When war is described in the Bible, it's often in terms of vineyards burning. When peace is described, it's described as everyone sitting under their vine and fig tree. If you've read the Old Testament, you probably recognize that. The vine is a reference to, the, to venting wine. 
Wine is about God's abundant relational blessings in the Bible. One more thing before I put all this together, and that's water. John tells us that there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. And here's what that means. In the Bible, we all suffer from being impure, meaning our relationships with God is stained and harmed and broken by sin, and our relationships with each other are stained and harmed and broken by sin. Our idolatry, our selfishness, our cruelty and laziness, our bitterness and our self-righteousness They do terrible and great harm. And so the Bible says that we need to be purified. And what these rites were all about was symbolizing the way that God, Jesus, purifies his people. They symbolize that though we were at odds with each other because of our sins against each other, those sins have been washed away and we can eat and drink together in peace. And we can do that because Your sins and mine through faith in Christ have been washed away by God's mercy and he has invited us to eat and drink with him in peace at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what the rite of purification is all about. They are symbolizing the restoration of relational joy and peace between us and God and between us and each other through the forgiveness of our sins and the reconciling presence of God in the lives of his people. So my guess is now you can probably see that where this is going. Right? Jesus is at a wedding. He's celebrating this new relationship. He's enjoying all the new relationships that are starting to be formed for this marriage ceremony. He's rejoicing in the love and the hope and the joy that everyone's celebrating. And he's even enjoying the wine that he has created in order to both symbolize and even add to the joy of the moment. And then his mother comes to him and says to him in verse 3, Hey, we're out of wine. And then Jesus says this really startling phrase in verse 4, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And I should tell you that woman was a term of endearment in this culture, so he's not being rude. And frankly, I cannot figure out a way to start a sentence of woman in English that doesn't sound like it's being aggressive, right? Woman. Gumne is the Greek. That one you can actually make, like, loving. Gumne. Woman doesn't work that way, but that's not his problem. That's an English language difficulty. Jesus is not being rude. What Jesus is saying essentially is, why should I be concerned of them being out of wine right now, dear mother, uh, out of that symbol of joy and peace, when in two to three years' time, I'll be bringing them the deepest blessings of peace and joy possible through my death on the cross and my resurrection. That, by the way, is Jesus' hour. When Jesus talks about his hour, that's his death on the cross and his resurrection. So we could actually rephrase what Jesus is saying this way in light of the whole gospel. Why should I be concerned about their wedding wine when in a couple of years I'll be giving them all communion wine? That's his point. But Mary, who has a pretty good understanding about um, how her son, God, works in this world, just turns to the servants and says in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus directs them to the waters of purification. And he turns that particular water, not just any water, the waters of purification into wine. And he turns it into wine so good that the master of the ceremonies, the master of the feast, is stunned. He marvels at how good it is. And this action, we're told in verse 11, is how Jesus manifested his glory. 
Because what did the disciples then see in Jesus' miracle? They saw Jesus assure that our relationships with each other and with him will move from sin to forgiveness to peace to abounding joy. What Jesus did was reveal that his fame and honor and his beauty, right, his glory, will be revealed in the creation and in the celebration and the continual renewal of forgiven, reconciled relationships that they then learn at the end of the gospel, as we know from the end of the gospel, will occur through his death and resurrection. That's Jesus' glory. Abundant relationships through forgiveness and reconciliation. Which connects really well then to our second point, which is that Jesus' glory is restoring those blessings when they run out. So to paraphrase Dale Bruner's comments on verse 3, in John, when John says, what John says, when the wine runs out. He doesn't say, but the wine ran out, like it's a surprise. He says it in the sense of like, the wine always runs out. And so Bruner's comment is, in our lives, the wine runs out. If you've been married for a minute, you know that if you were at a wedding and the wine ran out or the DJ's music wasn't going well or whatever, after feeling a little bit of embarrassment, you'd also say, you'll have that sometimes, (laughs) right? All marriages go through periods of hardship and frustration and sadness. Some marriages sadly go through periods of deep bitterness and some very tragically suffer from a lack of forgiveness, But that's not just marriages, right? If you keep in mind that weddings are about more than the bride and the groom, they should never tell them that on their wedding day. Uh, You know that relationships with in-laws can be hard. You know that friendships can suffer from neglect or from harsh words or from bitterness. The wine runs out. In the Old Testament, God's people are so consumed by idolatry and bribery and oppression and murder, and they are so unrepentant about it that God tells them in Isaiah, I planted you as a healthy vineyard, but now you become wild grapes, which means your life has become bitter and disgusting. That's what wild grapes are. They're bitter and disgusting, and they're not good for anything. In other words, God is telling Israel, the wine has run out. You've lost the thing in your life that makes for peace and joy. You've lost, God is saying, your faith in me, and you've stopped living with me. Because of sin in our lives with each other and even with God, the wine can run out. And in John's gospel, Jesus will meet lots of people who've run out of wine. The woman at the well, Nicodemus. The Pharisees, even John the Baptist at one point when he's confused and suffering in jail, will wonder, where, where is this, where's my life with God at right now? Did I get it wrong? And what do all of them need? They all need to be purified and restored to life. They all need water turned into wine, right? And what do we need? What do our marriages need? What do our relationships with our children need in our in-laws, in our friends, in our siblings, in our co-workers, right? They need the miracle of Jesus turning the waters of purification into forgiveness, into reconciliation and blessing and abundant joy. And Jesus' glory is not only showing us that he can do that, but look at how much wine Jesus makes. 
There are six stone jars. Each of them, we're told, hold 20 to 30 gallons of water, which means Jesus makes roughly 150 gallons of wine. That's enough for the party, (laughs) right? That's more than enough for the party. That's Jesus showing us that when our wine runs out, he can abundantly refill. So here's what that means. Does your marriage need purification and refreshing? Do your friendships? What about your relationship with your children or with your parents or with your coworkers? Go to Jesus and you can have it. And not only that, if you go to Jesus, you'll see that he has so much abundance to give you that you literally cannot exhaust it. In other words, whatever relational problems you may be having and whatever relationships those are, are not so entrenched and deep and broken that Jesus cannot overwhelm them with his blessings of forgiveness and peace and reconciliation. That's part of the meaning of this miracle. And that's the glory that Jesus is also revealing. Jesus comes to bring abundant, peaceful life through forgiven sins and to keep bringing that life to his people over and over and over again. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Right? Over and over again. But how do you go to Jesus? That leads us to our third point, which is Jesus' glory comes into our lives through faith. And we see that in two ways in this passage. The first way we see it is in the servants. Notice that when Mary tells the servants in verse 5, who weren't her servants, by the way, do whatever he tells you, they did exactly that. And that act of doing what Jesus tells you is faith. Kids, what does faith mean? Trust! Exactly! Faith means trust. When we do what Jesus tells us to do, we are trusting him. We are trusting that Jesus is not a liar or a manipulator. We're trusting that Jesus is not ignorant or mistaken. We are trusting that his ways are better than our ways. We are trusting that Jesus wants us to live, the the way Jesus wants us to live is the way of peace and blessing and joy and forgiveness. And not just for us individually, but for all people. And in John's gospel, we see that faith, that trust in action all the time. We'll come to a man in John's gospel, a lame man in John's gospel, who will tell Jesus that he can't be healed because he couldn't get to the magic pool of water. See the connection already between that and this section? John's gospel is amazing in how it just layers things together. And Jesus will tell that man, get up and walk. Now the man could have laughed And stayed down because Jesus didn't give him the magic water. But instead he trusted Jesus' words. In light of our text, he trusted that Jesus is the water who becomes wine. And he stands up and he's healed and he walks. He did what Jesus said he would do. Just like Jesus tells us that forgiveness is found in repenting of sins. That is in confessing them and asking him to forgive us for them. Jesus tells us that peace is found in forgiving our enemies. In turning the other cheek and in worshiping him alone. And that joy is found, ironically, paradoxically, in taking up our cross and following him on the road of self denial and sacrifice in the name of God's kingdom. 
See, when John writes Mary's words in the gospel, he actually shifts from the past tense to the present. Uh, And you can see that, do whatever he tells you. It literally says, and Mary says, do whatever he tells you. And that's because John wants us to hear ourselves addressed. You, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Because at the end of that trust, at the end of that faith, is blessing, it's peace, it's joy. It's a relationship with God and his people in happiness. So have faith. Do whatever he tells you. So we might say then that I think that the servants reveal that sort of beginning act of faith that does what Jesus says for that first time and then gets amazed when they see the kind of abundant life that flows from obedience to Jesus. The disciples, I think, reveal the continuing life of faith because after all, they've already sort of done what Jesus had said, right? They followed him. They've received his invitation. But in verse 11, we read, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. Now, literally, John uses a weird expression and it's just as weird in the original Greek as it would be in English if we translated it literally. John literally says, and his disciples believed into him. And I think Dale Bruner nails it when he says that through this sort of weird, unexpected expression, John means that the disciples grew in their faith. They went deeper in trust into Jesus. So that when John says his disciples believed into him, he means simply they trusted him more than they did before. And here I think we see the continuing life of faith with Jesus. As we follow Jesus and see his glory, we have more faith in him. We trust him more. And that's part of the joy of walking with Jesus for a long time. It means that we learn through days and years of following Jesus how truly full of forgiveness and reconciliation and comfort and strength how truly present and real and alive and valuable and beautiful and glorious Jesus is. And we learn just how wonderful it is to do whatever he tells you. Because we've come to trust that whatever Jesus tells us to do directs us to eternal life and abundant peace and deeper repentance and more powerful forgiveness. In other words, in John's gospel here in this miracle, I think we see a small picture of something he's going to expand on throughout his gospel. It's something the New Testament and the Old Testament focus on very deeply, which is that faith both starts the journey and it continues the journey. Uh, Trust in Jesus helps us see and receive Jesus' glory at first and helps us see and receive it throughout our life with him. And the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we are able to trust him and grow in trust and see his glory. That is, if we can learn to see it. And here's our last point, which is we need to learn to see Jesus' glory in our everyday lives. So I'm basing this point on comparing the master of the feast reaction to the disciples' reaction. The master marvels, the disciples believe. You'll see that those are the two reactions to Jesus' miracle that are recorded, right? The master is amazed. The disciples believe. What's the difference between the two? The difference, as the text tells us, is the disciples knew where the wine came from and the master didn't. Throughout John's gospel, there are people 
who see where forgiveness and restoration come from. So you can think again about Nicodemus at the end of the gospel, the woman at the well, right? And then there are people who don't understand where forgiveness and peace and joy and reconciliation come from. And you can think about the, the Pharisees. Or you can think about Nicodemus at the beginning of the gospel, which is chapter 3. When Jesus tells him, you don't know anything. <laughs> you think you do, but you don't. Right? And what I think we see in this contrast between the master and the disciples and in the various ways that various people respond to Jesus throughout the gospel is an invitation that to learn to see Jesus' glory in our lives every day. And here's why. Remember, weddings are about relationships. And not just at that moment, right? Weddings are not. People, always, people will say, and they mean well, but it, it's kind of silly. At weddings, this is the greatest day of your life. That's not good news. Because you're married now. This is the high point, And everything else from that is what? downhill no weddings are not just about that day that moment they're a celebration of a relationship that we pray will hope that will last until death do its part and grow daily in love and joy and peace and and delight and be a, a daily increasing source of strength and and joy which means it needs a lot of water turned into wine metaphorically speaking, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of reconciliation, a lot of, a lot of God's grace. There needs to be lots of repentance turned into renewed forgiveness. There needs to be lots of forgiveness to, turned into renewed peace. They just need lots of Jesus. And that's true of all our relationships, isn't it? So when we suddenly or not so suddenly experience repentance and forgiveness and peace in our lives, that is not a fluke. That's not people being well-adjusted and having good coping skills. It's Jesus. Just like when we experience anything that is full of peace and joy. That isn't happy coincidence or karma or whatever. That's Jesus giving good gifts in a fallen world. Every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows says James. Where did James the disciple learn that? Here. The first time he started to learn that was here at this wedding. Every good and perfect gift we receive, every relational blessing we experience, that is Jesus in his common or his special grace living with his people. And what we are invited to do by the two reactions in this miracle, by people's reactions throughout the gospel, and by John at the very end, this is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. That was a little fast, I'm sorry. But what we are invited to do is learn to see Jesus' work in our lives, so that we are not only excited like the master of the feast, though we want that, but so that we grow in faith in Jesus like the disciples. Whenever we experience anything good, and especially in our, as we've been talking this morning, any relational blessing, we need to look up. We need to learn to look up and realize where it came from. It came from Jesus. And he's manifesting his glory so that you can trust him. So my encouragement to us, my friends, is let's learn to see Jesus at work in our lives so that we can do whatever he tells us. 
and experience his turning the waters of purification into the wines of ble- wine of blessing in our life, turning forgiveness into new life and hope and peace over and over and over and over again so that each day we trust into him just a little bit more. Amen? Let's pray.